The legends are true. But overwhelming power! The sauce of destiny. Yes! The most legendary sauce has arrived as McDonald's transforms into the anime world of Wickdonald's. The greatest flavors unite in all new savory chili McDonald's sauce to make your 10-piece Nuggets, fries, and Sprite ultra-powerful. Unlock manga comics with every meal and sit down for a new anime short every week only at Wickdonald's. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba, go! And participate in McDonald's for a limited time while supplies last. And there was this deep pause. And that's when you know, as a coach, you've got something. That's that neuroscience I was talking about, the inner game. Her brain went, oh. And then she said it, you know, oh, yeah, you're right. Why did I become an executive coach? I saw lots of great people fail to get ahead at work, while their much less talented peers blew right past them. That made me furious, but also curious. What were great people getting wrong? It came down to helping them re-examine what drove success and then helping them make critical shifts one hard truth at a time. Feel like you're doing everything you were told, but you're not moving ahead at work nor having the impact you seek? Then welcome to 97% Effective with Michael Winderoth where we skip feel-good, happy talk and engage experts in pointed conversations about what it really takes to move the needle at work and your career. So if you feel stalled or frustrated or seek that extra edge as you move to the next level, then look no further. This is the Hard Truths Playbook you never got. Hi, I'm Michael Wenderoth, and you're listening to 97% Effective. You are at the cusp of moving to the most senior levels, a board seat, general counsel, or the C-suite. It's a challenging transformation. How do you mentally and emotionally prepare yourself to land the role? How do you reset your priorities and relationships? Or maybe you are already in that senior leadership role and you need to better own it so you can amplify your impact. My guest today, Anne-Marie Segal, has deep experience helping senior leaders at key transition points and on longer-term personal branding and leadership development projects. As part of her work, which we'll talk about today, she encourages leaders to first take a step back to think about their trajectory and what they bring to the table. Anne-Marie Segal, executive coach and author, is founder and principal of Segal Coaching, LLC. She and her team partners with board candidates, general counsels, and other senior and rising executives to expand their impact and advance their leadership trajectories. Prior to becoming an executive coach and a professional writer in 2015, Anne-Marie served 15 years as a practicing attorney as deputy general counsel to a private equity and hedge fund advisor with $6 billion assets under management and as associate at the prominent global law firm White & Case LLP. Her clients hail from around the world and every major industry and sector. During her tenure as an attorney, there were already signs of what was to come for her, helping accelerate the path of others. Anne-Marie served as facilitator of the Hispanic National Bar Association and HNBA Via Funds Poder 25 General Counsel Talent Pipeline Initiative, where she hosted panels, top speakers, and coached more than 60 in-house counsel participants. Anne-Marie is author of two career-related books that you'll want to pick up, Master the Interview, A Guide for Working Professionals, 
and Know Yourself, Grow Your Career, the Personal Value Proposition Workbook. She's been widely quoted in the media, CNBC.com, Monster, and Above the Law. Anne-Marie holds a JD from New York University, an MA in Art History from the University of Chicago, and a BA from Loyola University in Chicago. Anne-Marie, excited to have you on the show today. Welcome to 97% Effective. Excellent. Thank you. Glad to be here. You, Anne, were fired at the age of 15 when you tried to tell the owner of an ice cream shop how to run their business. I heard that snippet as I was doing research for our interview, but there was no backstory. And and I'm curious how might Anne Marie, now CEO and executive coach today, have uh, coached that 15-year-old if we could go back in time? Sure. So I wasn't actually fired, but I would have been. Um, It was a summer job. So, you know, there were a couple of weeks left. It was probably July by then. Quick snapshot of the situation. I told the owner, we should have cherry Coke because we've got cherry syrup, you know, an ice cream shop. What I didn't think about was the context. She had a friend there and it sounded like I was telling her how to do her business, run her business. So from a mentor perspective, there's a whole lot of reading the room. Mm. From a coaching perspective, I would want that 15-year-old self to tell me what she should get out of it. But certainly read the room, but don't minimize your contributions either. Mm. And know that big egos are everywhere. I want to talk about your career arc, which is fascinating, because I don't see many executive coaches come from the legal profession. Can you share a little bit about that path and what that you bring to the coaching profession? So this could be a whole podcast. (laughs) I could start with this. So every move had very personal reasons and also professional reasons, of course. For a long time, I was what my family called a professional student. I was going for a PhD, and um, that was a bit derogatory on their part, but that's what they said. At some point, I realized I wanted to make a greater impact than I thought I would be doing, and I'm not dissing art historians, but what I thought I would be doing with that profession and in being in academia. I realized that it's very hard to make it in academia, especially art history, you rely on grants, I really realized that autonomy was one of my highest values. And so that in part explains the shift to law school. And of course, there are many other reasons. I had met a lot of people in business school at the time, but I was much more of a writing than math person. I did not see myself as an MBA student. Law, so law and and obviously finance, right? I would say in part, and we were talking a bit offline yin yin yang. The way I see it is that both of these are different parts of myself and I'm bringing them together in coaching. I had very specific reasons why I left being a lawyer. I got celiac disease. I had to manage my time in a very different way, but I loved being an attorney for a very long time. And then one day I I realized I wanted another challenge. And I wanted to ask, because you also touched on this in the previous question, because you have such deep experience, a mentor, you coach, these terms get used a lot interchangeably. Would you define these? I imagine you do a little bit of both sometimes or show up as a mentor because you such a, such a long experience as a general counsel. Any distinction there to, to highlight? Sure. So, and, and that actually goes to the point as well. Attorneys are not unique in this, but the idea that you are paid for your expertise as an attorney really aligns with the mentor model. 
because mentors are, you know, I've taken this path and now I will show you the path. Where coaches, again, there are different methodologies of coaching, but a lot of it, you know, coactive coaching, the idea of the client is creative, resourceful, and whole. You are looking to help the client from a neuroscience perspective, actually make changes in their brain, rewrite the code, if you will, in their brain. And you can't do that through telling. It's just that that's the, I, I'm not a neuroscientist, but you, you know as well, that's the way it works. So what you do instead is you help. So in the ice cream situation, you know, what are you experiencing when you think about this incident in your life? You know, what could you learn from this? Um, and, and obviously the idea of powerful questions, listening, but really letting the person understand um, what's going on inside of them and then how they can effectuate the world from there and, and hold themselves accountable and change and transform. Yeah, that's a very crisp and useful distinction between the two. As we were preparing for this interview, I absolutely want to spend the majority of our time today discussing your work with the senior leaders, hmm. C-suite and, and those transitions, particularly how you deliver it, because you used to do a lot of one-on-one coaching and you still do, but now you've got a whole coaching group and you do a lot of group coaching with the Seagal Coaching Academy. You have a huge body of work that between your writing, speaking, and coaching that focuses hmm. on three areas as, as I saw it. A lot on networking, uh, a lot on branding, your bios, and the use of LinkedIn, and then the third on mastering interviews. So I mm -hmm. thought we would actually flip this interview and do a quick lightning round on those three topics. To start networking, the overused word that many people hate, but so invaluable, the research is clear on what it does to propelling your career, whether that's transitions or, or moving up within organizations. And, and you've said on an interview, networking is your net worth. And I've seen also you've done work with introverts who typically are not big into or don't like the word networking. Right. Is there kind of one issue that kind of continually rises that either people fail to do or they should be doing on the networking front? Sure. And I did also tell you Michael Melcher has a book coming out on this. So, you know, I would love to drop his name there because I, I have started reading that and it's a really great book. But the thing I would say people do wrong most, if there's a wrong in this, is that they think their network is static. So, for example, I have a client who said to me, I don't really have, well, many clients say this, I don't really have a big network in such and such area. That doesn't mean that you, I always say to them, that means that as of this very moment, you may or may not be right about that. So we have to explore that as well. But it also means you're, you're thinking of your network as your first degree connections, and you're thinking of them as people that you know today. And networks are very fluid and evolving. So I would say that is a different way to think about it. Mm. Um, and for introverts, the one-on-one -on -one is, is very effective. So that's actually a, not a negative. Um, I've written on that as well, and Dory Clark as well has written on that. So. I like what you said there because people often think about network as numbers, but you've also written, as you said, even a small group right. can be very, very powerful for you. And as, as an additional plug, yes, Michael Melcher's book is out. He was actually on this podcast at the beginning of the year where we featured his book. It is excellent. The second topic is around personal branding. From your years working on this front, 
a top area that, that people miss that they should be paying attention to on the branding front? Sure. And this foreshadows a bit what we'll probably talk about in leadership. People often want to do what, what I call a laundry list of what they've done in their resume versus thinking about their audience. And so they need to transform their own sense of personal branding. They've typecast themselves, essentially, before others will see their new brand. It's, it's, so it's an inner transformation as well as an outer transformation. I was curious mm. to ask you, because you do have a large footprint in private equity, the finance sector, the law, mm. where actually being on social media can often be frowned upon or get you in trouble. How should people think about a personal brand if it doesn't include social media? Right. So there are a lot of compliance issues, which thankfully I don't have to deal with much anymore on that front, especially in finance. In general, companies have policies about it, but in finance, it's, it's locked down at times. Everything needs to get approved. So then people just decide they're not going to be on social media at times, which is, is actually doing a disservice to them. But when I was in private equity, almost nobody among the partners and traders, for example, the hedge fund traders or the, or the analysts, very few people were even on LinkedIn. And now I see they all are, almost all, I would say, you know, 85, 90%. So it is changing. It's also changing with the junior lawyers coming up. They even might talk about their social media skills. Law firms are realizing that they need to engage on that front. But it is definitely a lag it's, it's, part of it is the seriousness that you need to present yourself with and the idea that everything's going to be out there forever. We're risk averse. Attorneys, as a, as a group, taking on risk is something that um, I help people with every day. Appropriate risk, I would say. So then rethink those perceptions that mm. being on social media is, is bad or will be out there permanently. Yeah. And like you said, branding is not just about social media. The last topic is mastering the interview, which you have literally written the book on. It's a practical, no nonsense. When candidates land the interviews, but they're not getting offers, what do you find is usually going on? It really depends on the candidate. Sometimes candidates have everything else wrapped up and they have something that they've put out in an interview, usually it's negativity, I would say, but sometimes it's just one answer that's just a bit off for their audience. Um, other times they just need more what we call at-bats. They need more times up. Um, they, they just need more practice. Don't assume that just because you're number two means you're not doing something right. It means you are doing something right. You got to number two. Your book, I saw, is going into second edition. Congrats on that. Thank Very you. curious, as an author myself, what in there has changed? Sure. So obviously COVID was a big change. Um, it changed how we do a lot of our connecting with each other. It changed how we interview. I mean, a lot of us, many candidates are interviewing like we're doing now, right? By um, virtual. Behavioral interviews is a category that I'd like to really emphasize more um, in the book. Mm. DEI. I have I talked about it in the book, but I didn't really get into it as deep as I wish I had. Um, so that d d diversity, equity, and inclusion being DEI. And, and some other general updates, mental health, something else that came out of COVID that we're re recognizing 
thinking about that in the interview space. When you say behavioral interviews, for those out there who may not be as familiar with that, mm -hmm. what do you refer to when you say that? Because that is done very much at the, at the higher levels. Right, right. Behavioral interviews are often when you're asked a question where you're presented with a situation, what would you do if, or how did you handle X, Y, or Z? That would be a behavioral interview question. And, and yes, as you said, it's coming up more and more. So let's transition to the work you do at the senior leadership levels, C-suite and the board. You mentioned that it's very important to first take a step back beyond an executive's personal experience. What do you mean by that? So take a step back. What I, what I mean by that, and I think where, where have I used that? Maybe it's take a step up, take a step back. But the idea is that metacognition or third-party view of yourself, meta, the idea of you being you know, outside looking at yourself. We get so involved in our own stories that we forget how others might see our stories. And we get so involved in putting our head down. And, you know, immigrants, minorities, women are more prone to this, but it happens with everybody that I work with. This idea of the work ethic and just, just keep doing a good job and you'll get noticed is not really a recipe to becoming a leader. So taking a step back is really taking stock, becoming self-aware, and becoming aware of the environment around you. And on that, what is your way to bring that in so folks early on get that up on the balcony view of themselves? I don't know if I always do it the same way, but usually I just call their attention to it. For example, in the interview space, I always say the only question that matters and people hate this, but it's just true, is why should I hire you? That's really the only question that matters, right? Because every question they ask you, when you look to answer it, you're answering why they should hire you. And so that's a way to take a step back, for example. You know, I also often use the phrase, be authentic, but not transparent. By transparent, I mean like see-through. Don't, you don't have to tell someone everything that you're thinking. People feel this need, often extroverts, but you know, in general, we feel this need that, oh, to be completely correct and completely inclusive and tell you everything that I could think of. But no, because you're answering, why should I hire you? So if it's a question of why did you leave your last job, it should be authentic, but it doesn't need to include your entire life story. I love that. Why should they hire you? As you start to work with senior leaders, you, you've talked about internal and external changes that are needed. And so I'd love it if you could share a little bit about what you mean by internal. Sure. And I know your goal here is to help, what, how did you say it? Good people move up in their careers, right? <laughs> Without cliches. So I hope this doesn't sound cliche, but the idea of the inner game and the outer game is part of the way we would look at that. The way you change what's going on inside of you is really relational to your world, but also how do you view yourself? I mean, you know, Michael, coaching isn't therapy in the sense that we're looking back and trying to dig into your past. It's from today forward. But you do need to get a snapshot of where you are and how you see yourself. So for example, I have a client who was talking to me about 
you know, she spent her whole career, I'm paraphrasing, but she spent her whole career trying to get to a certain point, and she still is not the expert in everything that she thought she should be by now. And we kind of got to this place where, did you expect that when you got to this place you are, you'd be looking out at the view, you know, from the top of the mountain, and, you know, everything would be calm? Or did you expect there would still be more challenges? And there was this deep pause. And that's when you know, as a coach, you've got something. That's that neuroscience I was talking about, the inner game. Her brain went, oh. And then she said it, you know, oh, yeah, you're right. Um, Being a leader doesn't mean being an expert on everything. It means showing up, thinking about the strategy, having experts around you but really understanding, you know, again, cliche, but the big picture, you know, understanding that you're, you're moving a lot of different pieces and just trying to get everything as perfect as you can, knowing that you don't have perfect information and there will be mistakes and you've, you've got a goal and you're moving toward it. You've been listening to 97% Effective with your host, executive coach, Michael Winderoff. If this interview is making you think, make sure to share it with a friend. Now, back to our interview. And so that's very much the the step back and the reflection, right? When there was that pause that you said she was thinking about that. You referred to a lot of individuals are just kind of heads down. Other types of internal work they need to do as as they shift from it's me delivering the work to another stage when you're up at the top levels. Yes. And in fact, I mentioned COVID and the mental health piece coming out. I would say self-care. And this is something that as a lawyer, I would have cringed if I'd heard myself say, you know, the macho culture that you just keep pushing. But but the problem is that that leads to burnout um, in one way or another, almost invariably. And it might just be however long it takes. We type A's or we achiever types push our bodies as far as they can go. And it's really not a long-term strategy. Can you say more about this? Because I'm glad that you brought this up. And and when I was looking at your website, I saw there was, you know, leadership coaching, transition coaching. And then I saw it it, it might have been called self-care coaching, right? And so I said, oh, I might skip on that one. But I think Hmm. it's a particularly in light of COVID, particularly in light of the Mm. 24-7 and the industries that that you work in, can you say more about what self-care coaching looks like or the work that you do with individuals? So it's often integrated into the rest of what I do. Um, I don't have clients who generally just come to me for wellness coaching. The idea is to be looking at yourself as being effective as a leader, There's that phrase, put on your own oxygen mask first before you help others. We, when we push our bodies to an extreme, we don't think well. We react. We're not creative. You know, that idea of the reactive to creative mode. We're we're in constant reactive mode when we're stripped of resources in our body. I mean, that's just physiology. Um, it's like, if, imagine that you ran a marathon. Most of us can't do much after that. But that is what we do to our bodies every day often in, in these roles. So what happens then is that we don't make good decisions. We don't really take care of our relationships in the way that we should. And so we don't show up as leaders 
the way we could. So it, it's self-care, but then it also has a component of caring for you know, the rest of your community, um, your organization, everyone around you. So the way to do it is to put yourself first in, in your calendar, like literally put things and, and respect it. You know, that doesn't mean there's not going to be two or three weeks when there's this humongous transaction or, you know, the equivalent, but you, you just have to keep coming back to it. And you talked here about the internal pieces. Is the external the things we talked about before, or is there more to that that people should be thinking about? Well, it's so it's to some degree, it is what we spoke about before, if you mean the personal branding piece, yeah. but it's also the relationship building. It's how you communicate. Personal branding used to be the idea of reputation, right? But it's grown beyond that. Personal branding includes how you communicate with others. It includes how... It, Right now, how I speak and pause and present myself. If I was, you know, racing through something, you know, when I talk to a client, for example, for the first time, and they just do not stop. Wow, okay. So if I heard you right, and, you know, paraphrasing is part of coaching, but we try not to overuse it. These are the three things that you really wanted to get across in what you just told me. Oh, I, I didn't even hear it. They like don't even hear themselves think sometimes. So it comes across as personal branding, right? That they're, they're just not very organized in their thought process. They might not be aware of that, but it, it also is an external piece because it means that their teams might not be understanding them. They might not feel that they can get a word in edgewise. When they speak to people from other cultures, they, they might just be losing people. They need to be aware of how they're being perceived. So those are other examples of the external game. Yeah, really good examples. I'm actually feeling like a really good example because I, I read your newsletter as well. It was kind of at the end of last year. I think you were mm -hmm. launching a new service. You came out with a communication that, you know what? I, I'm not launching it on time. <laughs> and there was oh, something that yeah. was, uh, you. it sounded like you had maybe had gone through a little burnout or there was like a bunch of things going on. And you shared that in, a, in an authentic, but you know, probably not totally transparent way to use your language before. It feels like a very good example here of dealing with some of the internal and external because you're communicating both to your clients and prospects, mm -hmm. but also your team. Sure. Probably it was the mindset course that I was talking about. One of the things I've found recently for myself is <sighs> I have to take my own advice. You know, we all do. But there are things that I feel light when I do. And there are things that I put my head down and push through. And I set goals for myself to try to keep myself accountable. But then when I make those goals public, you know, I, I felt as though I should give myself an out because I know people read the newsletter and I know they need that space as well. So that's why I felt it was important to say that publicly. It wasn't because I was letting anyone down in particular. Let's also talk about bias. I don't think either of us would deny that it exists. The, the playing field, so to speak, is, is not level out there. Right. You use a phrase that I think is absolutely fantastic about developing strategies that are robust enough to eclipse bias and get results. Can you say how you, how you think about bias and how you work through it with your, with your clients? So bias 
Right. Bias exists. We all know that. You know, it's the kind of thing like you, you can deny it, but it doesn't make it go away. We all have biases. DEI experts will tell you that's the first step. With the work I'm doing, I try to be inclusive, but not intrusive about it, right? Not um, overly emphasizing that we're focusing on diversity. In some groups that I'm running now, it is for diverse candidates, but it's diverse writ broad. Before, as you said, I did work with the Hispanic National Bar Association, so that was clearly an affinity group. I would say to be robust enough to eclipse bias, right? Well, so sometimes you need to assume positive intent. Sometimes you need to ignore negative intent. I have a client, for example, who told me that when he was elected to a certain role at a company, you know, there was a group of white guys in the corner laughing at him. How's he going to pull this off? And then he did, and then he pulled something else off and something else off and something else off. And it wasn't like, I'll show you, because that doesn't help, right? Just ignore your critics. Sometimes comments are just offhand and they're not meant to offend. And that's where you need to assume positive intent. But what I would say specifically to individuals in terms of their own strategies includes having a personal board of advisors, for people who don't know that concept, it's basically like a board of advisors for a company, unpaid in this case. They're people who have very different perspectives and can help you with that metacognition concept we were talking about before. They can help you understand the audience and and how different people might react to different parts of, you know, how you approach your career, as well as, you know, sometimes people who are mentors and have taken that path before, because a lot of these leadership inflection points, you need help. What also comes to me here is that you don't have to do it all on your own and that you've got other people, a diverse set of people with different experiences who can offer you advice, mentoring, that idea of the personal board of advisors, really fantastic. So if you're out there and you haven't formed one, (laughs) get get to it and and develop it along the lines of what Anne-Marie has just just said. Is there, I've seen in your practice, in in addition to growing tremendously uh, the past few years, that you've also started very specific women's uh, leadership groups. Mm -hmm. Can you comment about any particular focus that comes out of working with those groups? So it's funny because I didn't intend to create a women's leadership group. It just kind of happened. Um, As I was starting to fill one of the cohorts I noticed that everyone who had joined and it was about 80% full were women. So I said, well, why not just, you know, finish this off with women? I also run a mastermind for board candidates um, called Diverse Attorneys Corporate Boards. And it's kind of the same thing happening in that group as the women's group, which is just that there's an element of, um, it takes some of the competition out, I would say. Um, not that there isn't competition amongst um, people in these groups, but there, there, someone said to me, you know, if there was a straight, white, cis man who'd really made up to the top of the mountain in this group, the conversations would be so different. And, and that's what's happening in each of these groups is that just, you know, there's an opportunity to really explore concepts that sometimes when someone's in the room and doesn't really understand how hard it is 
to not to be underrepresented, as you called it in, in the notes you sent me, that you are the only woman in the room at times or the only racially diverse person in the room at times. To have that conversation when someone's not really aware of what that experience is, is very difficult. And it's a very different conversation. So I would say that is what's really happening most in these groups. Mm-hmm. When you say mastermind, what does that mean, just so people are clear on that? So the mastermind, the idea is it's a member-led group and people are coming together to really exchange ideas. The way I've set this up, we are now doing a half hour where the members are meeting together and then we have presentations. Um, So we have current board members coming in. Um, We've also had some recruiters who work with board candidates coming in as speakers. But the idea is that I'm facilitating, sometimes I'm coaching, but they're really growing from each other. And that's, in all of the cohorts, that's really where I think it's so magical. They're, they're, um, one of my, when the feedback I got from one of the cohort members, it's like, you're, you're pulling back the curtain that you, you know, on other people's lives, CEOs, general counsel, boards as well. It's in some ways such a solo trajectory, right? Or, or you, you feel like you can't talk to anybody. You know, you're going through these issues, you have high levels of confidentiality, you have a whole team that you're trying to, you know, keep everything, keep stasis, you know, keep things going and not have any crises popping up. So you can't actually tell them sometimes what's really on your mind. So the cohorts have been great in that sense for people to come together and, you know, share without sharing proprietary information, of course, but share. Sorry, I always have to do that as a lawyer. That's still in me, <laughs> right. you know. Um, they're not they're not telling the dirty secrets about their companies, but, you know, be able to share experiences and, and learn from each other. You know, I had this conversation with someone who reports to me and I really screwed it up. You know, what, do I, what, what should I have said or what can I do next? That's the kind of engagement that is very different in a group than one-on-one. Since we're on that topic, and this is really about the Seagal Coaching Academy, can you, can you share a little bit more of this transition? First, from your perspective as, as an executive coach, that transition from one-to-one to more group coaching, what has been most interesting or challenging for you? Hmm. Okay, so I'm going to say something that's more transparent than I probably would have thought. But the way you put the question up, I'll, I'll tell you. I, what's been most challenging for me, honestly, is that I don't do any marketing for my one-on-one coaching. I have more people who want to work with me than I can even keep up with, which I wouldn't say means I'm the best coach ever. I think it, it has to do a lot with what you said earlier, that there are not a lot of former attorneys who are working as coaches, who are coaching attorneys who are staying as attorneys rather than trying to get out of the field, because that's, of course, another distinction. But in the cohorts, it's like you've got to get everybody together on the same date. You know, there's a lot of logistics that come into it. Um, So that's one element that that obviously is very different. But also from, uh, from a coaching perspective, it's been a real growth experience for me to learn how to coach people in a room. I'm very used to I'm the vault, right? As an attorney, you, you're, you're used to keeping confidences. It's not like I'm thinking what happened in an individual session and afraid I'm going to disclose it. You know, that's pretty easy for me. But there is the idea of how do I coach this person in this room with everybody as observers and make it relevant both for the person who's being coached and the group. And that's just a different way to think about it all together. The answer that I've come up with is to just be in the moment, 
And to do the prep beforehand and then just let it unfold. Super fascinating. Those who are out there who are saying, hmm, group coaching could be interesting for me for all the reasons you've talked about versus say one-on-one, how, how does a, a potential client assess what's better for them? Hmm. Well, so when you show up in a group coaching session um, or, or setting, you, you're accountable in a very different way. You really have to show up for your group. You have to be on and interacting or you won't get as much out of it. Whereas if you're working individually, I mean, some days you're going to make more progress. Some days you're going to just, <sighs> frankly, I have clients who, like I have a client one time who's like, I, I know I told you what I wanted to talk about today, but I just fired someone for the first time ever. And I just need to talk through this, you know? <laughs> So we could shift completely to her agenda, which is the beauty of one-on-one coaching, not something that would happen in a group. But then again, in a group, you're pushed much more than you might be in an individual session because you are interacting with not only the coach, but all these others around you. Right. It's, the opportunity for growth can be greater at times if you're willing to you know, take that risk. Yeah. And if, and if you've got a highly engaged group, right, the accountability mm. is, is, is even heightened there. Anne-Marie, as we come to the, to the close here, a- any particular question that I didn't ask that you'd like to address? You were pretty comprehensive. And Anne-Marie, any, anything emerging that's top of mind now? I, I, you have continually built your practice and you've, you've expanded into areas of need. Any big trend or emerging area that has your mind share these days? Well, I'm taking this course at Brown that I mentioned to you, Leadership and Performance Coaching Certification. I decided to do that at this point in my career. It's, I'm really invested in thinking about continually having the beginner's mind, continually thinking how can I be not just better at what I do, but how can I show up in a different way, which involves my inner game, you know, there's, there's, you can always unpack more and more and get to a better place. And so I, I think about that. I think about all of us continuing to evolve in our careers. And in my sense, this is the way that I'm doing it. Fascinating. I love hearing how other coaches continue to, to raise their game. And so thank you for sharing there you that. Go. Raise your game. You bottom lined it for me. <laughs> <laughs> there you go. So, Amory, thank you so much. How do people see you, work with you, learn more about what you do? So you can go to my website, Seagal Coaching, S-E-G-A-L, not like Stephen, SeagalCoaching.com slash request. Excellent. Thank you again for joining me today. Thank you very much, Michael. Thanks for listening to 97% Effective where we skip happy talk and help you break through and ascend one hard truth at a time. Help others discover this show. Leave a review and rating wherever you listen to your podcasts. And if you like what you heard, you can get free resources, including the first chapters of Michael's book, Get Promoted, on his website, www.changwinderoth.com. That's www.changwinderoth.com. W-E-N-D-E-R-O-T-H dot com.